I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Of course, this is Resistance Radio. This is just happens to be Resistance Radio with John Kane, and I want to explain that a little bit. But first, let me welcome listeners from WBAI in New York City and from WBFW in, in Washington D.C. Look, this radio, these radio stations are are giving you information that allow you to formulate opinions that are not being shaped necessarily by the mainstream media. So when I talk about resistance radio, you can't resist if you don't have the information. And so part of what my job here is from a native standpoint to explain what our resistance is all about and frankly, how it affects yours. So again, I want to remind people that, that resistance radio is listener sponsored radio. It's it's listener supported radio. So we do count on your contributions to both to WBAI and to WPFW. So if you're ca- catching the show regardless whether you're catching it on either of those stations or through Facebook live stream or as a podcast or or however you're hearing it. Sometimes I put these up as YouTube videos. However you're listening to this program, I ask that you support WBAI and WPFW. These are stations that allow me space. I mean, we, we talk a lot about land back. We talk about trying to assert our identity and, and reclamation. Well, maybe airtime doesn't seem like a real space, but it is a real space and it's a space for dialogue. And I appreciate having that space both in New York City and in Washington, D.C. I will also say, you know, as much as I want you to support these stations, I also need you to spread the word. I mean, you know, we can we can speak to her blue in the face, if, but if, if if not just anybody, but if the right people aren't listening to some of that messaging, then it doesn't really get traction. And so if you're one of these people who, who listens to this program and think others should hear it, then suggest to those others to hear it. And of course, they can find me on Facebook. They can find me as a podcast. Just search Resistance Radio with John Kane podcast, and it'll come up real easy. Ask Alexa or Siri or anybody else, and, and it'll come up easy enough. So so please do that. Look, last week, I mentioned I was, I was really starting a campaign. Now, I realize when people hear the word campaign, they're thinking about who the next rich white man that's going to be in the White House is going to be. Well, that's not my campaign. <laughs> you guys can sort, sort that out, and, and my, I wish you luck with that one. But My campaign is about correcting a narrative. And the narrative that I'm trying to correct is this notion that we are wards of the state. And and look, there have been politicians. Paul Gozar, just, you know, a decade ago, went on record. He he made, you know, in some sort of press release or or press conference, he said on on a mic, not just a hot mic, but on a mic, that Native Americans are wards of the state. I mean, that's literally what he said. But you know what? He doesn't say that without some foundation. And part of that foundation has been this notion of a trust responsibility. And I've heard plenty of politicians use that expression. I've heard plenty of Native people talk about it. And look, when it gets said, there's almost this sense that, 
Well, that's just kind of documenting that the federal government has an obligation and to right the wrongs of the past. Well, that sounds good, but that's not what a trust is. And so when they say it, or, or when we say it, what we're saying is that the United States is our trustee. Well, that supports Paul Gozard's notion that we're, that we're wards of the state. In order to have a trust, there must be a trustee and there has to be a ward of that trust. Well, that's what is allegedly, you know, what, what, what that, that's the narrative, right? The problem is, is that it's false. It's not true. There is no trust. There's no legally binding. There's no agreement. This, this language comes from the Supreme Court. You know, it's funny. We, we, we hear all the time over the last decade about, oh, we can't have, you know, the, the Supreme Court legislating from the bench. Well, what the hell do you think they've been doing for 200 years? I mean, this notion that a court could make a ruling and then you, then you cut out excerpts of that legal dicta in that opinion written by whomever writes the majority opinion. And then you create this, this, this whole notion that that little excerpt that we pulled out is now the law of the land. And, you know, last week I, I kind of went through it. I said, look, there's three cases from the 1800s when Justice John Marshall was the chief justice. And they call, they call it the trilogy of cases. One is called Johnson v. McIntosh. One is Georgia versus the, or, um, Cherokee versus Georgia. And one is uh, Worcester versus Georgia. And these three cases, Justice John Marshall made his ruling, which is almost pointless at this point. I mean, uh, the rulings are not the legacy of those cases. The legacy of Johnson v. McIntosh is the codification of the doctrine of Christian discovery. This notion that Native people simply don't own land. They put it in their law, even though there's contradictions. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 2005, she cited the doctrine of Christian discovery in a case involving the Oneidas. And I got to tell you, we as Six Nations, including the Oneidas, we, that whole doctrine of Christian discovery would, should never have applied to us. And why? Why are we so, so distinct? Well, I'm not saying we're the only ones distinct, but we have language in the Canadagua Treaty that said three times that the United States acknowledges that the land is ours. And that the United States would never claim the same. And this was before Johnson v. McIntosh. This is 1794. So the legacy of Johnson v. McIntosh isn't how they ruled about these two lease lessees that were trying to lease native lands. No, that ruling is almost irrelevant. What's not irrelevant is that that is when the United States codified, codified the doctrine of Christian discovery. And then everything topples down from there. Everything from jurisdiction, everything from the, the waning of our sovereignty the taking of our lands, all of that stuff. It all comes from that notion of taking that doctrine of Christian discovery and making it part of U.S. law. So that's what Johnson v. McIntosh did. Now, the other two cases, they did something a little bit different. In Cherokee versus Georgia, this is the first time that you hear, again, John Marshall talk about Native peoples being domestic dependent nations. As if we are wards, like ward guardian is the, is the uh, expression you used. So this notion that we are wards of the state, that's 1831 that, that, that was written. And it wasn't even a part of the ruling. It's just an opinion that he offered and an analogy, I guess, that to somehow back up his opinion. So for all of the, the, the legal dicta or the, or the, the case law and the rule of law, supposed rule of law, he makes an analogy that becomes the rule of law. This notion that Native people can be regarded as wards of the state. 1831. Then a year later, in 
in Worcester versus Georgia, which Native people weren't even in the case. This was about a missionary, the, the state of Georgia trying to push missionaries out of, out of Georgia. In that case, John Marshall, ruling that the, the state couldn't do that, wasn't, wasn't even the, the, the legacy of the ruling. The legacy of the ruling was that he first asserts then, and this is like 1832, that Congress has absolute authority over what happens to, to and about Native people. So the plenary powers doctrine, none of this stuff is, is bound in law. This is all made up by, just, by, by Justice John Marshall. And I think it's important that people realize that for a country that, that prides itself on rule of law and democracy, there's no democracy when it comes to Native policy. And that's why you got Peter DeRico referring to, in his book, federal anti-Indian law, because there is no quote-unquote Indian law that is anything but anti-Indian. So I talked about all that last week, so I'm not going to go through it all. But what I have to do, and again, I apologize for my scratchy voice. Yes, I do have a bit of a cold. Not COVID, but I do have a bit of a cold. But what I want to talk about this week is, okay, well, what's the point of correcting the narrative? Well, here's the thing. I know a lot of people say, well, we should sue. Well, you can't sue. We can't sue. Because the whole idea is that they're falsely claiming to subjugate us. And they have to essentially eliminate the notion of real sovereignty. I mean, they'll throw the word tribal sovereignty in there. I mean, you know, even some of these judges will throw that in there. Politicians do it all the time. But by sticking the word tribal in front of it, they mean not real sovereignty. Because here's the thing. A court in the United States can't rule on issues of sovereignty. Why? Because they can only rule on issues that are contained within their constitution, within their rule of law. And the funny thing is, their constitution makes it clear that we're not a part of it. The three times we're mentioned in the U.S. Constitution, twice we're mentioned on the same level as foreign nations, and, and once is, is, is that we will not be enumerated for congressional representation. So clearly we're not part of the United States. But over time, with rulings and then with this legal dicta that came out, especially out of Justice John Marshall, you start creating a false narrative about our, you know, I mean, look, John Marshall literally said, equated discovery with, with conquest. He called it an extravagant pretension to suggest that we were, that, that they could somehow convert mere discovery, which is not even really discovery. It's the, it's the idea of them seeing us for the first time. They laid their eyes upon us and that could somehow be converted to, to just sheer conquest and subjugation. I mean, it's, 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 it's not just, an extravagant pretension. It's absurd. But, you know, the thing is what he says is that, but if you can do it and get away with it and maintain that lie, it, it no longer becomes a lie. I mean, it's literally what John Marshall, not literally, but it's, it's, it's I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. And he's, he says, if you can maintain that, then it becomes the law of the land that can't be challenged. That's what he said. And, you know, and so that's what we're living with. So when I hear people say, well, can't we sue over this trust responsibility? Can't we sue them for a breach of trust? No, we can't because there is no trust. In fact, Sam Alito even clarified that point when at one point when the Apache were trying to get documents provided to them by their so-called trustee, the United States, they said, no, we don't have to give that to you. We don't have to give documents on 
on who is managing your resources. What do you mean you don't have to give it? If if you're going to call us wards of the state and you're the trustee, how could you deprive us of the information? Well, because it's not a real trust. Congress can fashion the idea, and this is what uh, this was Sam Alito. He said Congress may state its relationship with Indians a trust without assuming all the fiduciary duties of a private trust. That's, that's literally what Sam Alito said. So you can essentially create this trust responsibility that is bare and limited. So when we tell you we don't have to give you your documents, if you were a trust, if this was a trust and you were a ward of the trust, the trustee would have to give that to you, but not in this case. Because how could you have the trustee put a higher value and a higher priority on the national interest of the United States than the so-called wards that they were supposed to be entrusted to, you know, have obligations to. So to be clear, there is no trust responsibility. It's just language that is meant to maybe make people feel good. I mean, if you say that, oh, you know, the United States has a trust responsibility to us. Well, that sounds like, okay, that means that there's an obligation, a legal obligation. Look, there are legal obligations that are bound in certain things that were ceded to the United States, especially land and resources. But this notion that we are a, a ward of the state. And look, one of the things that supports this notion also is the fact that when the, the United States, quote unquote, created the reservation system, in most places, the native people don't own the land. I, that's not true for me where I live. I live on... Seneca territory. The Seneca Nation owns land here. It's not held in trust. Again, that word trust. It's not held in trust by the United States. In fact, they have a whole process. They call it fee to trust. Well, this is the process by which land can be reclaimed for native use, and it's land that is taken out of a fee title within the state and then placed in trust to the United States for the use and benefit of native people. That's called fee to trust. Well, I got to tell you, at some point, we've got to correct the narrative and we've got to say all right fee to trust well how about fee to trust back to fee because what fee is is about who owes the title and in our case here in seneca land mohawk land onondaga oneida you know places in within the the haudenosaunee here the land is held in what the united states defines as restricted fee it means that we had the we hold the absolute title to our lands but the restriction they're talking about is that we can't sell it to anybody but the United States. That's the restriction that they claim. Now, I don't even know if there's a legal, if that's legally sound. I mean, it's not like the United States uh, purchased this, le- this uh, uh, you know, option to buy our land, but they claim that, you know, the, the restriction on, you, on your ownership is that you can only sell it to the United States. And, and of course, that turned into, you know, a, this idea of land speculators having to go through a different process. Of course, it didn't always start out that way. There was never, it was all muddled about what the property issues were, but that's what we accept now. But what the United States and Canada has done is lands that Native people occupy and live on, the United States and Canada, by and large, hold that land for them. So it's not actually titled to the Native people. It's held in trust by the United States and Canada. So what is the legal basis for that if there's no real trust? If there's not a legally binding agreement associated with that, and why would there be? Well, I'll tell you, the reason that you have a trust, usually a trust is set up for like minors, for kids, or somebody who's been deemed incompetent, which kind of brings us back around to who we are. 
Because for hundreds of years, the United States has looked at Native people as incompetent. And in fact, I would argue they still do. Because if you watch Killers of the Flower Moon, I know I've mentioned this a few times, I'll mention it again. And you are appalled by the notion that the Osage are the richest people in the world at that time, but they can't have their own money unless they have a white man, you know, taking care of it for them. They're appointed a white guardian. And the federal government required this. Why? Because not only were the, the Osage deemed incompetent, they had to register each time they, they wanted to get money and certify, yes, I'm, I'm incompetent. They'd actually say the words. Well, if you look at the gaming law, and I mentioned this several times, but I'll say it again. When they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, IGRA, what they decided was that there was no statutory framework for, for native gaming. So let's create one. Let's create one and force native people to get to enter into a negotiated compact with the states that they uh, that surround them. So the states will have regulatory authority over their gaming. And, and that's what exists. So in other words, we were deemed incompetent. Now we were already, already doing gaming. That's the crazy part because this law came in after the fact and it came as, as a response to a case out in California where the, California was trying to shut down a high-stakes bingo operation at the, on the Cabazon territories. And the Supreme Court said, look, there's no statutory framework. So neither the states nor the federal government have authority over native gaming. So Congress rushed past and, and rushed and passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And they imposed this upon us. And we didn't even have a say in it. We weren't like, a, you know, this isn't one of these deals where we have billions of dollars worth of, you know, PAC funding going into someplace or, or lobbying funds to make sure that we get the regulations we want. No, this was about the states getting their way. So we're still, to this day, being treated incompetently. We're or, or treating, I'm sorry, we're being treated incompetently, yes, but we're being treated as incompetent, untrustworthy, undependable, incapable of managing our own gaming operations. Today, still today. So that's the reason I want to bust the narrative. But it doesn't start by trying to take on the federal government. It starts by getting your own people to stop saying these things. And that kind of gets me to, addressing the broader public here look there's going to be a lot of a lot of noise with the presidential election this year but i gotta tell you most real politics and governance is local most of it's local i mean and and when i say local i i don't just mean your state legislature i mean your town councilmen i mean your school board representatives most of what happens in washington by the time what they do there affects you, you, you may have already ignored what's happening. at the state. Look, even the, the big debate over abortions, the fact that the Supreme Court got stacked by Donald Trump, yeah, and that's a terrible thing. That's what happens when, when the, right, the right gets in, uh, into, the, into office, right? Good reason for not voting for a, a Republican is because of the way the, the court has been skewed so lopsidedly. But every state can protect itself. I mean, essentially, the, the abortion debate turned back into the states being having the right to say, you know, to legislate over this thing. You know, prior to Roe v. Wade being dismantled, that it was a constitutional right. So your rights are really more local. You know, so what happens, you know, in your, and it does start with things like school boards, because that's where your children are being taught. So, and, and from a Native standpoint, 
it's the same thing. It starts here with, with native governance. We can talk all we want about Deb Hallen and, you know, Joe Biden or Donald Trump or, or, you know, Chuck Schumer or, you know, Nancy Pelosi. We can talk about all these people all we want, but if we don't have our house in order, and that's what I say to every community, every municipality, I'm not just talking about urban centers. I mean, every neighborhood, every group of people. You guys need to need to organize. And I don't mean organize to do big things. I mean organize to, to look after yourselves. So when I'm trying to bust this narrative, I'm trying to get my own people to stop saying trust responsibility. I'm trying to get my own people to understand that the United States is still, to this day, not 1920s Osage territory, I mean today, still treating us as incompetence. And as I convince my people to take a, a really hard look at this and understand what is being done to us, that's the first step to change. And I'm not talking about changing it because we're going to sue them. Like I said, I've, I've heard people say it. You know, can't we sue over the trust fund in Canada? Can't we sue over lands held in trust? Well, you're going to enter their courts to do it? Well, how do you think that's going to work out? Especially because that whole trust responsibility thing and Congress having plenary powers, or in Canada, it's the same thing with, with where, where the authority rests as far as their government's concerned. We enter into their system, and it's already stacked against us. But if we mount more and more resistance, and it's a groundswell from the local communities across Native com territories, and I say the same thing you know, in, in, in America <laughs> for U.S. citizens, Canadian citizens, you can affect change, but it's got, you can't think you're going to you know, have a million-man march to Ottawa or Washington, and you're going to solve something that way. For one thing, where the hell are you going to get a million people? You can, but you got to start by talking to people. You know, and for, for Native people, we have a real challenge because among the things that are done to us is this idea of destroying our identities. You know, 150 years of residential schools had a big part of doing that. The way history and the way entertainment, you know, television, uh, literature, movies, radio, <laughs> Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show. I mean, the way that we've been characterized for entertainment value has depreciated who we are. So we need to correct this narrative because we need to do that as we're reclaiming our identities. And in reclaiming our identities, we have enemies amongst us. We have, the, the, you know, you've heard the debate over pretendians, Buffy St. Marie and others, right? Well, part of my fight on the mascot issue is because you have entire schools where because they call themselves the chiefs or the warriors, you've got a bunch of white kids running around playing Indian. And I don't mean just kids. I mean, they're doing that until in their 30s, 40s, and 50s in some cases. I mean, I get into this debate every single day on Facebook or on Twitter or wherever, social media in general. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly in this debate. And, and I do it on purpose because I think demonstrating the ignorance associated with these people claiming our identity. And the funny, funny thing is, you always get these people saying, well, I think it's just crazy. All these people are just crying around about words being offensive. And they're crying around about losing the, a, a team mascot, whether it's their high school or whether it's the Washington football team. I've seen more tears shed from white fans of their native mascoted teams when they've been forced than anybody. We weren't crying about it. We were working to change it. But see, that's the identity thing. Because, and even as we claim, look, 
you've appropriated our images, you've appropriated our names, you've appropriated our likenesses, parts of our culture. You've got people dancing around on a football field or on a basketball floor, gym floor, mocking our dances, mocking our culture. We're not going to allow it. We're not crying about it. We're just not going to allow it. And that's why we've had success. But fighting for that is, is all part of this thing. So when I talk about the narrative, the narrative is broad. For one thing, we are not extinguished. You don't get to claim our identity with this under this false belief that we don't exist anymore. No, we're still here. You don't get to recreate a past version of who we are so you can play Indian on a basketball court or a football field. No, you don't get to do that because we're still here. And you know what? We're still fighting you. And in, in what you're doing with this so-called mascot stuff, you're trying to rewrite history, making it sound like, oh, yeah, we, we have an affinity and we honor what Native people represented. Really? You committed genocide. You're still committing genocide. And when I take these people on, the vitriol just, they can't help themselves. You know, they, they, you know they, first off, the first thing they try to do is try to dismiss you that you don't have a legitimate claim. They try to say, well, it's not about native voices. It's all about the liberal elite trying to change. Look, we couldn't get liberals off the dime on this thing. In New York State, Commissioner of Education in 2001 told schools to get rid of native mascots. But he didn't put a deadline, and he didn't make it a ban. It's taken us over 20 years to get democratically elected officials and the agencies under democratic administrations to finally do what they did. It's taken us over 20 years. So don't tell me that the liberals were out there rushing the gates to change mascots. They weren't. They were digging their heels in and as much as almost as much as Republicans were. So there's that. But it is so important that people define who they are. And look, I'm not telling white folks and black folks not to call themselves Americans. But you better understand where your lives are. Because your lives are not in Washington, D.C. And they're probably, unless you live in Albany, they're not in Albany. And they're not in any of these state capitals. They're where you live. And that has to be the priority. That has to be the priority on how you're going to interact with governmental officials. I'm not saying the president of the United States doesn't matter. I mean, look, they, they're spending your tax dollars. And they ain't spending it on you either. They're spending it on Israel and Ukraine and, you know, other, other places. <laughs> and they ain't spending it on you. But you know what? Nothing's going to change with that. They're, they're racking up debt that your tax dollars are paying down. But if you want to make yourself somewhat autonomous from the federal government, you got to take responsibility. Stop relying on the federal government and, and reduce your reliance on the, on the federal government. And every one of us can do that. Native people can do that. You know, every, any community can do that. But you can't do it if you don't organize yourself to do it. So when I talk about resistance radio, I'm saying resist this notion. And, and look, they, they call it, what do they call it? Federalism. That's what, that's what they, in the United States and other countries, they, get, they call it the system of federalism, where you have a national government, which is three branches, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial and then it breaks down to states and then and to counties and and municipalities and and uh, you know all the way down boroughs i mean if if need be so you have the system of government where the assumption is 
that all the real power is at the top, at the federal government. I'm sorry. I just don't believe that's true. I think that we need to assess that we still, and I'm not saying this just as a sovereign person, as a native person, you an individual possess a lot of power. But if you're going to reduce that to casting a ballot every four years, then you just give, give away a bunch of your power. I'm not saying voting gives it away. I'm saying reducing it to voting gives it away. I don't think voting matters. I think what you do on a day-to-day basis in your community, with your community, and with your, your community governance, I think that has more impact than casting a ballot. In fact, you want to change the electoral system? Boycott it. I said this recently. In fact, Reg, you can join me if you want on this one. I saw your oh, post. Boy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I made a comment on, on one of your, I think, yeah, your Instagram. Yeah, I saw it. That's saw it. And I said, look, saw it. think about it. If Trump had won the last election, we wouldn't be dealing with him right now. He'd be facing him. He'd be out in next November. And I don't know that things would have been much worse. I mean, yeah. And if they did get worse, then maybe the Democrats would have learned a lesson to think to counter a Trump with something a little bit more, I don't know, more effective than, well, than a Joe Biden. I mean, could you argue that if Biden would have fulfilled one thing that he promised, and I'm not talking about the temporary things, I'm thinking something that is longstanding, just one thing, this is how pathetic it is. If he would have just fulfilled one thing that would have been longstanding, there would have been no discussion about this. It's, it's, you know, and I know is that the 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 establishment the, ex, the 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 status quo needs a trump in order to do their dastardly thing so they so you could be distracted over the menace and that's always been the case well and, and let's be honest here biden ran targeting the center so that's where he governed from right. he didn't govern from the left i mean for all right. the people who want to claim that it, you know it's liberal elite ruining oh, the country it. and Man. that kind of stuff I mean, man hung out with Strom Thurmond. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. So look, and I'm not saying that, that I wish Trump had won the last election. I'm not, not going that far. I'm not going that far. I, I wouldn't wish that guy on anybody. But you know what? I think answering a Trump, four years of Trump with four years, maybe eight years of Joe Biden, I don't think that's a really harsh enough response. But maybe there's a reason there wasn't a harsh enough response. Because maybe, I'm sorry, didn't learn your lesson with four years of Trump. And you know what? There's a good chance Trump could get elected. And so, well, you know, I mean, and, and I think it's because, look, there's a whole lot of people, especially because of this Israel conflict. I mean, Joe Biden's having a hard time even doing doing a campaign rally right now without having somebody calling him Genocide Joe. Well, uh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it's, well, uh, it's worth noting, too, is that... Uh, the head of Chase, I think it's the head of Chase, Jamie Dimon, mm-hmm. said in a Davos meeting, you know, the annual event that happens in Swiss, uh, yeah. that happens in Switzerland, you know, he pretty much ended up saying that he's good with, tr- if Trump gets elected, he's good with that. Meaning that all the demonization that they want to put on Trump, and they're saying that he knows, Jamie Dimon knows, and other people like him knows, that at the end of the day, They'll get what they want. Exactly. And they don't care about the character flaws of Donald Trump or whatever else. Right. They know that he's, you know, he's a, you know, he, he he's barely a human being. I mean, he he's really just something that that kind of <laughs> moves uh, in a way that that secures that he's there, so to speak. I mean, it's not like right. he's a driver of the stuff. He's being driven. 
and in and oh, he is absolutely. he is a and a creation of a of you know he's an American creation. So I mean, and look, I'm it not is. trying to shift the whole program towards the Congress. No, no, no. Conversation, but I, I thought it was that. you know I, I my point with with the statement that I made on your on your social media post was that 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 office doesn't really affect. I mean, think about when Trump was president or during this administration with, with Joe Biden, how many things have really affected you directly? Yeah. I know money got handed out for COVID and stuff like that. Uh, but how much, how much really affected your life? And and when you think about that, things that have affected your life, like inflation and maybe gas prices or whatever else, I mean, is any of that really being driven by presidential policy? I mean, I know they all want to blame every, each other for, for this kind of stuff, of but Look, we can all do things in our own community. We can buy local. We can support local economies. We can create economies that are somewhat buffered from, you know, from other regional flaws if if we so if we so choose. And that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not saying the presidential right. election doesn't matter. I mean, well, I guess I am kind of saying it well, doesn't matter. But uh, uh, what I am saying is, <laughs> if you're going to be passionate about governance. You better look closer to uh, closer to home if that's what you want to be. I agree. About. And, I agree. And the same thing goes for native people, right? Because I can make all the right. stories no, about correcting the nar absolutely. narrative in Washington, but if I can't convince the the Seneca Nation, which is the government that I live under here in in Seneca territory, to take a stronger position against being designated as a ward of the state, if I can't convince them, then I, who am I going to convince? You know, I, I look. I can reach out to other native communities, and and that's what my campaign is. So. That's what I'm going to talk about. And, and in some form or fashion, over the next several weeks of months, I will constantly come back to this theme that, no, we aren't wards of the state. And, no, we aren't incompetent. I'm going to keep coming back to that. And, look, I, I don't think Killers of the Flower Moon was a great film. I think the book was far better. But at least it raises some awareness to all those people who are going to go out there and see that film or hopefully read the book about this notion of being designated incompetent by the federal government and then watching the legions of people to step in to take advantage. In this case, Kathy Hochul or, you know, or, or the owner of the Buffalo Bills or whoever else who gets to step up and suck money out of the Seneca Nation's gaming enterprises so they can, you know, fatten their wallets. I mean, there's example after example that you can go back not only to the Osage in the 1920s, but every step along the way about how being designated incompetent has created opportunities for white people to fleece us. And we see it in mineral extraction, mining, logging, water, grazing, everything you can imagine, all the natural resources that our territories held or do hold. I mean, the Interior Department mismanages the resources so badly that they are sued in a clash action suit called the Cobell suit, where in all likelihood, a hundred billion dollars worth of malfeasance occurred. They couldn't even tell native people whose land, which parcel of land they own. They lost leases. They lost deeds. This is the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They were sued. And during the Obama administration, they settled it for pennies under the $4 billion, a hundred billion dollars worth of loss. And Barack Obama and Joe Biden settled it with a $4 billion settlement agreement for the Cobell suit, which essentially gave everybody who was a part of that, the party to that, uh, that suit, a thousand dollars and some money got back, put back to, to pay white people to move off the land that they illegally occupied. I mean, it's, it's, you can't make this stuff up, 
But this is the level of incompetence. The fact that the fact that that the federal government will claim to to still maintain control over our resources, over our lands. And of course, I have to remind people, the United States, Great Great Britain, Australia, and New Zealand were the only four countries that voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. They are the only four countries that voted against it. Now, other countries that had abstained and countries that voted for it have sat back idle while genocide continues in native territories. I mean, so, I mean, it's, it, it's absurd to think that the countries that are most associated with indigenous peoples refuse to meet, and, and by definition of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which defines itself as the minimum standard, the United States and Canada refuse to meet it. They refuse to meet the minimum standard for survival and dignity of indigenous peoples. And I'm not, look, it's not like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People recognizes our sovereignty or, or in any way, shape, or form. In fact, they, they make it clear. We are not associating indigenous peoples with statehood, nation statehood. No, we're not doing that. No, they stayed way away from that. But still, the United States rejects it. And why do they reject it? Because they want to form and fashion this notion of self-determination as, as only an internal right and an internal authority to manage certain things, not land, because the United States is still claiming under the doctrine of Christian discovery that we don't hold title to our land, even though where I live, we do. But that's what the United States is doing. That's why they're against it. They've, they reconfigured this notion of free prior and informed consent that is laced all through the UN Deco- Declaration. It's laced through it. In, in every occasion where there's an impact that's going to happen to Native people, under the UN the International Declaration, free, prior, and informed consent must occur. But what did Barack Obama said? No, we're, gonna, we're not doing the free, prior, and informed consent, but we'll do consultation. So all they got to do is put a chair in the corner while, it's being, while an issue is being discussed and say, well, you were consulted. We didn't get your consent. See, anybody who read the document says, oh, so Native people do have veto power on the things that impact them. Wrong. Wrong? No. means that we get to sit in a room. Sometimes, if we raise enough noise over it. Because, trust me, unless we make noise, they won't even do the whole consultation thing. And we saw that with with Standing Rock, right? That's what we saw with Standing Rock. There was no consultation. We saw that here when uh, the United States was trying to change their taxing system on tobacco and and did what they call the floor tax. Hmm. There was no consultation. I went down to Washington, raised hell with Jody Gillette, who was Obama's policy advisor. And I, you know, I, I gotta tell you, I personally made that one kind of go away, but they never made an official statement and they never gave back any of the money that some native people have paid. They just stopped sending letters. <laughs> I mean, you, like I said, you can't make this stuff up. So I'm not going to apologize for the fact that I'm going to keep pounding this issue. I'm going to, I'm going to try to bring on some guests. I'm going to try to bring on some native leaders. So on air, we can discuss this notion that the United States continues to treat us as wards of the state. And that language, that narrative of trust responsibility is part of that, is part of that justification. We got to stop saying it. We got to stop allowing it to be said. And we've got to stand our ground. And eventually, we've got to work towards freeing up any of our resources, including land title, 
from this notion that the United States and Canada are our trustees. That's what has to happen. And that's, you know, look, that's going to be something that, that I feel passionate about because, you know, as I've taken on issues over the years and I've taken on many, I come back to this time and time again. Look, I've, I've you know, I'm, I'm still going to push hard with the residential school issues that I want restoration, not reconciliation. That's another campaign that I have, you know, that I'm, that I'm pushing. But if we don't solve this ward custodian thing, this trust responsibility thing, then they're, they're just going to keep bowling us over here. I mean, I got to remind people, when the Indian Child Welfare Act was under attack by a rich family in Texas, backed by oil money, that wanted to adopt Native children, we want our Indian babies. Yeah. When, when they were trying to, they tried to say that they were being discriminated against and they wanted to challenge the whole notion that any legislation that is different when it impacts Native people from anybody else is racist and that it violates the, the, the U.S. Constitution because it has, it, it, it's laced by, with racial discrimination. The Supreme Court didn't address that charge. They didn't. They stopped at the first argument that says Congress has plenty of powers. I don't agree with that. So they defended the Indian Child Welfare Act by saying if Congress passed it, it doesn't matter. Um, in fact, they, they don't, don't even address the racist issue. But when you got white people saying Native people are just Americans of, of a different racial designation, that's a problem. And if we don't correct our identity narrative, including this notion that we're wards of the state, we cannot seek protection for ourselves by saying that Congress has our backs because they don't. They never have. They've always designated us as incompetence and they've treated us as if we were somehow mentally deficient, untrustworthy, or otherwise incompetent. And they continue to do that. So if we don't correct that narrative and if we don't assert that, no, we aren't just Americans of native descent, that we are a distinct people. You came around us. We didn't ask to be a part of you. We were not legally subjugated by the United States. You pass a law that clay, that declares that we're citizens. We didn't even have input with that. We didn't choose that. We didn't select that. We didn't sue you for a piece of legislation that made us U.S. citizens. Now, some people, and I get it, and this is the challenge, right? I get it. Many Native people have had their identities so messed with over the years. They don't know who they are. Many Native people enlist in the armed forces. They serve at the pleasure of the president in, in a carrying a gun, they go and fight other brown people around the world. Why? Because they bought into the narrative. Many people will claim, they'll, they'll pray in the white man's church. They'll vote in the white man's election because they don't know any better. They're not going to affect anything. The church doesn't collapse if Native people don't walk in there. The military doesn't collapse if Native people don't enlist. And the elections aren't going to be swayed if we don't vote. I know everybody wants to bring, well, Arizona, don't forget Arizona. Nah, Arizona. But, I mean, look, this is the deal, right? We have to understand who we are and not be blinded by false narratives, including the one that says Congress has our back. And not only do they have their backs, that, that they have unfettered authority to regulate the meats and bounds of Native sovereignty. No, it's not true. So this is my campaign, folks. And I'm going to keep, every week when I do a show, 
at some point, this will probably be part of the narrative. And I'm going to bring some guests on. <clears throat> and look, I'm going to, I'm not going to try to play any gotcha with anybody. I'm not going to bring on a, you know, a native, you know, leader of some sort and say, and, and you know, push him into a corner. They'll know full well what my, what my message is. Look, I had Lance comes from, from Shinnecock on, and he mentioned the trust responsibility. And when I corrected that, he said, oh, no, yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, oh, look, I corrected him on the spot. And I wasn't trying to be, you know, you know, I, you know, I wasn't trying to be arrogant about it. But I want everybody who speaks on our behalf, and, and Lance works for the, uh, he's one of the directors for the National Congress of American Indians. I want that narrative to go away, whether it's with native government, whether it's through associations like the National Congress of American Indians or anything else. We have to back away from using that language and we have to correct any U.S. official who uses it as well. We've got to stop allowing them to cast us as their wards, as if they have that authority because we never gave it to them. And, and as I said at the beginning, none of it is based on rule of law. It's all fabricated. It's literally pulled out from legal opinions that are drafted as ancillary opinions of a judge that go beyond what the actual ruling of the court cases were. Like I said, the three court cases that, that most of this, this legacy policies have come from, some people think that we won all three of those cases. They think that, you know, that the doctrine of Christian discovery, you know, basically stopped white people from, from lining up to take our lands. Well, it didn't do that. But that's the way that was part of the narrative. They think Cherokee versus Georgia, that that the Supreme Court said, you know, the, the, the states can't can't force native people off their lands. What does Andrew Jackson say? <laughs> All right, court, you have your ruling. Now let's see you enforce it. First time, not the only time, first time a US president defied the rulings of a of a Supreme Court. So John, yes, I have a question for you about this. And you 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 st- you triggered a word about identity that I, I feel that because I, I've had similar conversations, of course, with you, but I've had conversations, sometimes heated conversations with my father uh, when it comes to these things like that. But do you believe that because things are the way they are, it's because people do not know who they are? And second, is it because they don't feel that they have any other options I think I think the latter is part of it. I think it's both, but part of it is we you're indoctrinated from from four years old when you're going to pre-K right up to kindergarten all the way up to pledging allegiance to the flag every single day. I mean, think about mm-hmm. that. When Nazi Germany was doing that with little little white kids in Germany, everybody th- thought that oh, that look at that indoctrination. But they don't pay any attention to it when they got little kids learning how to narrate or uh, recite the national anthem or the or the pledge of allegiance. And think about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. So. What everybody gets taught to be in school is to be patriotic at the national level. So it, and it, that's kind of my message today. We've got to take things back local. We got to, you should be able to have a conversation uh, in a free society. You should be able to have these conversations freely in, in your community, in your, not just in your household, but in your community. We can argue whether, you know, <laughs> whether the patriarch of a family wouldn't su- suggest <laughs> that there is no democracy in a family. We, we all grew up with that, right? <laughs> But but anyway, well, (laughs) there's that right. (laughs) But but (laughs) but we we have to get away from this notion 
that we have to have this blind patriotism towards the United States. And I'm not saying you got to hate on America. I, I made the argument that who needs to shout death to America when you can just say go Trump? <laughs> because that's a little <laughs> bit of, a, of its own unwinding right there. I mean, but <laughs> of course, I got, I got a different view than some people. But, uh, <laughs> but I think that's the whole point, right? I think, I think we have to stop being blindly patriotic to anything. And we do need to question leaders at the local level and at the national level. I'm glad that there's, there's this debate over what the United States has been doing in, in, uh, with Israel and Gaza. I mean, it's absurd to me that because of, a, of an accusation from Israel, the United States and all the countries backing Israel pulled funding from a UN agency that's providing aid to Palestinians who are, who are being murdered. They pulled that funding, and yet nobody's even talking about pulling funding from maybe the bombs that are killing these people in the first place. I mean, it's, it's absurd. I'm glad that the debate is happening, but I got to tell you, some people are going to say those people are damn unpatriotic un for, for bringing it up. And that's what we got to break. We got to break that cycle. Yeah. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. Reggie, thank, thanks again for, for joining me. I know I, I always suck you into these conversations, whether you're willing or not. <laughs> uh, it's not that it's not it's not really hard. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you're probably just kind of sitting there sometimes just thinking, man, if you ask me, I got something to say. <laughs> but no, I appreciate that. I make sure I have plans. No, I, I, and I see what you're, I see what you're doing. I, I, I watch you too. So, and, and I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad to be associated with you. Look, I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to remind people that, that this is resistance radio on WPFW and WBAI. And I want to remind you to support these fine radio stations in any way that you can. And you can do that both financially and by spreading the word, let them know that there is a conversation that you're not hearing anywhere else on this program on these radio stations. I greatly appreciate it. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.